0: Read along with me, if you would, please. Verse 1 says, And Jethro, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. Thank you. Sort of a scandal. We don't know much about it. We'll get into that in a moment. With her two sons. That's the scripture, not this falling over. And her two sons, of whom the one was named Gershom. Can you say Gershom? Gershom. Eh, Some of you were there. For he had said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. And the other's name was Eliezer. Would you say Eliezer? Eliezer. Not bad. For he had said that the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law... Do you get the idea the word father-in-law is being used in 13 of 27 verses? Um, It says, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other their well-being, and they went into the tent. Moses told his father all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the land or the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in this very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, in case you didn't get it, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God, and Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, "'What is this thing that you are doing for the people? "'Why do you sit alone?' And all the people stand before you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one another. And I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing in which you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from the people able men as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you will do this thing and so God commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all the people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over people: rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of 50s, rulers of tens. And so they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then men I'm sorry, then Moses let his father-in-law depart. And he went his way into his own land. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, here we are looking at a historical event that took place roughly 3,400, 3,500 years ago. And yet, Lord, it's just as pertinent today as it's ever been. Lord, I know that you intricately, intimately know us here and in knowing us, you know what we struggle with. You know what our battles are. You know those things we'd love to leave behind. And you know those things that we just gladly consider. You know those things we've misappraised. You know those things, Lord, that we've undervalued and those things we've overpriced. And Lord, I just pray that you would put things back to sanity where there, aren't, where there isn't sanity. I pray, Lord, you would perform therapy on every hurting part. I pray, God, that you would do a powerful work in this time. Lord, I pray that you would do something so beautiful, so intimate, so real, that every one of us could clearly say we've encountered you. For any who have yet to know you, let this be the morning of their salvation, this, the afternoon of their salvation. For those, Lord, who do know you, that we would further shed who we were to further become who you make us to be we commit this time to you, Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. And may we have so much fun as we get in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Never me. I'm never the boss. I'm never the end all, say all. The scripture is. And praise God, because it's a whole lot older and more tried than I'll ever be. In this text, we learn a little bit about our situation with Moses and his family. In Exodus 17, if you remember, we've come to Raphidim. Raphidim means, in essence, resting place. Or it means the place of the thing that holds up the banner, if you remember, like in the barrister of a, of a staircase. And in there they found no water. God said he would stand on the rock. And of course, those of you with us last week watched me beat Kenan. um, Because that was by demonstration, by the way, of course. As the Lord said, he would stand on the rock. And then Moses was to beat that rock as the water was to come out. And then from there they were attacked, if you remember, by the Amorites. Those that would be, in essence, an emblem of the flesh. That flesh nature. Now that God's people have found a place to ease up and relax. And it's a common problem, by the way. We'd love to think otherwise, but in all honesty, the Lord has called not a Christian sit or a Christian stance or a Christian position, but He's called it a Christian walk for a reason. And it is amazing how we could say that, well, we'll give God a chance, but what we're going to do is we're going to sit here and wait for God to serve us like a bellhop. And in that, somewhere down the line, we wonder why we're struggling, especially in areas of the flesh. We sit down and we watch TV and we wonder why we're struggling with what we're watching how all of a sudden everything's about sex and then everything's about sex in your mind. Everything's about violence and everything's about violence in your mind. And you wonder how that happens. And you know that God says, look, at, I, I'm looking for more than that. I, wanna, I want you to walk with me. Ultimately, when Joshua takes command from Moses, God will tell him, and listen to this promise, everywhere where you set the, the sole of your foot, I'm going to give you. And I love that because that command doesn't take anything but a good pair of shoes and legs that are willing to move. He didn't say you're going to have to fight and earn it. He didn't say that if you do these 17 things and go through this loopy loop of death and all of these other things, maybe God will grant you something. He just said, look, what I want you to do is walk. Just walk with me and let me give it to you. Just walk with me. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, if God were to tell me everywhere you want a step I'm going to give... I'd be infinitely thinner than I am now, infinitely in better shape, because I'd be running. And I'd be, first of all, I'd try to find the places I like the best and I'd start walking there. How about you? Well, we'd walk up and down the Thames maybe. We'd walk all the way around Hampstead Heath. We'd walk around Regent's Park. We'd walk around wherever it is that you might find that you like. I'd take a trip down to Brighton and just start walking all over that. Whatever it is. But in the end of it, I'll find some good surf spots and start walking there. Now, the idea is quite simple. God just wants you walking. But somewhere down the line, we've found a resting place. And by the way, we're going to be here until the beginning of the next chapter. By the beginning of the next chapter, we're going to actually end up at Mount Sinai, which, of course, is where we're going to get the Ten Commandments. Which, by the way, might I remind you, was where Moses was back in Exodus when he actually encountered God at the burning bush. That was the same mountain. God says, this is going to be a sign to you. You're coming back here, Holmes. This is a loose paraphrase. Again, don't just believe me. Search the scripture. He's like, you can come back here. And when you come back here and worship me, I'm not going to tell you I told you so. I'm going to tell you it now. I told you so. You're coming back here. Now, that's going to be a sign for you that I meant everything I said. Now, I remind you, when that was said, Moses was a 40-year-old veteran of tending sheep. He had, in essence, in his mind perhaps been a 40-year failure of being a deliverer of the people of Israel when he fled from Pharaoh 40 years before that. So when God says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh and all the people are going to come out with you, you're going to be right back here. I would imagine that would be a pretty tall order. Now, two million people. Put that into perspective. God shows up and speaks to Paul and he says, Paul, I'd like to give you the entire West End. I'm going to have you walk there. Every theater you walk by, I'm going to give it to you. Every person, they're going to follow you out. Everyone's stuck in the adult district. You walk by, they're going to follow you out. Do you think Paul's like, of course. Peter, I'm going to give you Hackney. You're going to walk through Hackney. Every floor of a council house, I want you to walk through knock on the doors, and say, who's coming with me? We're leaving slavery right now. Do you think that Peter's going to go, piece of cake? The natural response for Peter, for Paul, all oh, those kind of nice names for that. Where's Mary? Anyways, the natural response would be the same that Moses gave, which is, who am I? And God, in his simplest sense, more politely than I will, says, it's never been about you. Stop thinking about you. This is about me and these people. I've heard, their weakness. I've heard their cries. I've seen their desperation. I've watched this torture. I know their sorrows. So I'm going to come down and deliver them. For that, we think, yeah, right on, until God says, Dash, so let's go. And Dash goes, what do you mean, let's go? I'll wait here. Tell me about it. He's like, no, I'm going to use you. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That was good until the use me part. So here we are. We are a chapter away from going to the place where God says, you're going to end up here again. Or a chapter away. This is it. By that point, God will tell us it will be three months. That's our time stamp, which means we've been out in the wilderness two months and whatever this chapter takes us. In this chapter now, what we, we find is Moses is really burdened. And that becomes a real problem. Now, he's led the people out. By the way, he's led the people out by following. You did get that, right? Because he was following a cloud, a cloud of pillar by day, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's pretty easy. Think about how easy that would be as a leader. All you have to do is, I mean, the pillar turns left, you go left. And then the people complain. The pillar goes right, you go right, and the people complain. The pillar stops, the people stop, and the people complain. That's kind of the way things have been. Now, in all of that, what happened, when we get in this text, if you think about it, we have gone now from watching God deliver us from our thirst, God deliver us from our bitterness, if you remember that, God deliver us from the flesh, even to the point where He promised us that you will be battling this for your life, but there will be a day, there won't be a remembrance of this anymore. And then with that, now we get chapter 18, verse 1. Now, this priest, by the way, it's important to note in regards to the Midianites. I don't know if you know this, but Abraham was married after the death of his wife, Sarah. Are you familiar with that at all? I mean, that kind of plays into this a little bit, so do this for a moment. If you've got your Bibles, flip them left to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Now, remind you that when Abraham had his son, Sarah was 90, Abraham was 100. Somewhere in that, we're going to have to have, then, the whole situation in Genesis 22, where he offers his son on the mountain, stopped, and, of course, comes back down, gets a bride for him, and somewhere in all of that, of course, after the sacrifice and before getting his bride, he actually says goodbye to his mother. After saying goodbye to his mother, that's Sarah, that's Abraham's wife, Abraham will remarry. And it says this then in Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham again took a wife. Now, I don't know about you, but a guy's really rich I would be a little concerned if I was his son to think he was marrying a gold digger because he's a hundred and something. Nonetheless, he took a wife and her name was Keturah, and she bore him, and we'll see a list of six kids. This guy's well into his hundreds, and he has six more kids. I don't know. Pardon me for saying. There's a part of me that thinks add a boy. Anyways, with all of that, and sorry. Of the six kids. One's name, notice here, uh, there's a couple that are actually really cool names. The, the last of them, Shua, um, that's kind of my favorite, because isn't that a clothing or store on Oxford? Anyways, but there's one, notice there's one that's named is Jachshan, one that's named is Midian, like the Medes, and then one named Midian. The one that's named Midian then becomes the parentage for what we find with this Midianite priest, that happens to be Moses' father-in-law. So in essence, they are a bit related on a very, 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 very distant way. It tells us, notice by the way, in verse 2 of 25, it says, she bore him, and then it talks about the, the daughters as, as well and what they bore, Zimran, ducks, and so forth. And it says ultimately that he gave them gifts and sent them east. Now that is important because... The prophecy would be that when the Messiah would come, that all of Abraham's children would be gathered. So I look for some kids that were really wealthy, sent out by a very rich dad, and sent east when Jesus would come. When the Messiah would come, I would expect a bunch of very wealthy people from the east to show up with some gifts. Wow, God doesn't even wait until Jesus is grown before those guys show up. Have you noticed that? Now, wipe out of your mind for a moment what the names of these three kings or wise men are because scripturally it only says plural. They were kings. There could have been a hundred kings. There could have been two. still makes it plural. All we know is there were three gifts. doesn't even say three boxes of gifts. There could have been 15 boxes of gold. There could have been one box of gold. There could have been 16,000 little canisters of myrrh. All we know is they came bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Are you with me on that? And it makes sense to me because actually by the time I get to the book of Psalms, now thousand B.C., it says that when they come they will be bringing sweet incense. Interesting. So I should be looking for incense and people being wealthy. God knew what he was talking about, didn't he? Now, by this particular point, now we know the Midianites had gotten to the place where they're kind of forest, or I'm sorry, they're wilderness dwellers. And as they're wilderness dwellers, remember when Moses was running from Pharaoh, and that, by the way, is at the beginning of Exodus. That is where he winds up, winds up helping this gal who happens to be, in essence, a shepherdess. She gets home early because apparently the other shepherds seem to be chasing the girls away quite regularly. Dad says, boy, you're here early. How did this happen? She said, there was this guy who helped us. And he said, wow, what kind of hospitality are you offering? Why didn't you invite him back? Where is he? So they go find the guy, invite him back. And the man does what any hospitable man would do, gives him one of his daughters. So be careful how you help people there, I suppose. And that particular girl's name is Birdie, little bird. And the word is Zipporah. And Zipporah means bird, birdie, little bird. Now, with that, what we read in Scripture with her is that the two of them are married, and he has a son, and he names that son Refugee. He's a Fuji, And his name then is Gershom. You said it. Gershom means Fugee, Refugee stranger. Now what we do read about this couple, we don't read much other than when God speaks to Moses at the burning bush and he says it's time to go, he goes back and he has to tell his wife, honey, we're leaving dad, your dad, and we're leaving the, the family business shepherding his sheep because God's called me to go and confront the most influential, powerful man in the secular world who already wanted to kill me 40 years ago. You can imagine how well that flew on route, in route of the situation, that's where things really get a little rough. Because in route, his wife circumcises his son and then says, you are a husband of blood to me. By the way, for what that's worth, that's in Exodus chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Now, forgive me for this backstory, but it's really important for where we're at. Because it's the last time that I see the name Zipporah or his wife or that son, again, until now, Now, do they go with him at that point? I really don't know. Interesting, by this point, we see that there are two children. Where is that second children, second child? Where did he come from? We've never seen him listed in Scripture before this point, and to be honest, we're not going to see the kids listed again. Also, for what it's worth, I'm not going to see Zipporah listed again. So was this kind of the kind of thing that that spat, just said, why don't you just go home to Papa? I don't know. What's clear is, somewhere down the line, she did go home with the kids. Because now... Her dad's bringing them back. It's interesting. By the time dad brings them back, he says, your wife and her children. I do find that interesting. Of course, we live in a culture where that kind of thing is fairly common, don't we? It's sick, but it's true. So in this situation now, here we are. Moses now has seen, um, obviously, Pharaoh defeated, and as he's seen Pharaoh defeated, now he's, he's obviously in a place where things seem a little bit easier, although they fought their, just fought their first battle, as we're aware of last chapter. And with this now, his, dad sh- his father-in-law shows up with wife and children in tow, and he sent the letter ahead of time, and he says, hey, I just want you to know I'm showing up with your wife and kids. With which then he goes out to meet him, and they go and he pulls him in. Notice that. So it says then in verse 2, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and by the way, this guy Jethro, Jethro means his excellence kind of a cool name. Actually, do you know the guy has three names in scripture? How many guys do you know have three names in scripture? Jethro? And you think, well, that's probably not a really cool name. Let's give him another one. How about Hobab? That's definitely improvement. Any of you named Hobab? I don't want to insult anyone. All right. And then Ruel. Jethro or Jethro means his excellence. Hobab means cherished, or beloved. We'll see that, by the way, for what it's worth in Judges 4.11 as well. And then, Ruel, which we'd see in Exodus 2.18, means, and one of my favorite names, means a friend of God. So I have to, I go, okay, guy's got some pretty hot names. How would you like to, okay, well, my, what's your name? His excellence. But that's not what they all call me. What do they also call you? They call me cherished. <laughs> Precious. And what else? Well, friend of God. How interesting for a guy, by the way, who, by the way, seems to be, in essence, kind of really into the occult because the Midianites were traditionally occultists. And this guy shows up and apparently he's going to come to a conclusion. So he says, I'm bringing your kids. He shows up. Notice it says then, verse 4, the name of the two children. The second was Eleazar, which means God is my help. Verse 5, it says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his son and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped in the mountain of God. And he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, woman, he's encamped at the mountain of God. Is he already at Sinai? He said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, I'm coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Her two sons. You notice that. Moses went to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed them, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. So that's classic small talk, right? We might ask about the weather. He's like, so how are you doing? Hey, how are things? Well, let me tell you how things are. You want to come into the tent? I'll tell you. Now, traditional Bedouin respect, by the way, which is what the Midianites were, is that if you actually saw a traveling band of raiders, like or I should say, a traveling band of shepherds, is that if they even saw you, it was they were required to invite you into their tent and make you a meal. And one of the reasons is because they were people that were always moving to other lands to make sure their sheep had ground, you never really knew if you were going to wind up on someone's land. So if that be the case, you want to make sure you invite everybody in right away and make them a meal so you could be friends with them, just in case either you were on their land or you might show up on that land sometime later. So the idea of this man coming then, and Moses, it's a, you, Moses would have been expected to invite him in. But why do you think it is That 13 times, God makes clear, it's his father-in-law. Man, I think that's a little strange, don't you? Well, let me just say this. Well, I'll start with this. When a boy is born into a household, he is a permanent member of the family. There is a party that is had in Israel. Matter of fact, to this day, when a boy is had, you know, the family line is going to carry on. Another little dash. And there will be a dash to carry on the dash lineage the dashness, that will be it. However, when a daughter is born, and I'm not picking on you ladies, when a daughter is born, there is a celebration, but it's a different one. They celebrate for a family they know yet not, because they know that that daughter, for most intent and purpose, is a temporary member of the family. Because they know that there will be a day when that daughter will marry into another family, and the moment she does, she ceases to be a member of the other family. In other words, she was created for the purpose of being brought into another family. The father knows that he has her on loan. As a result of that, he has the responsibility to raise that girl, and the villagers make them a cord of three strands. Red, blue, and gold. Those three strands, by the way, are because the father knows. The father, not the mother. The father knows that he is responsible to provide for her physically in a manner so that she is not beggarly, to provide for her emotionally, which, by the way, at least in the Middle East, the concept is that there is some form of stability and security because usually those are the things that tend to make an emotional base feel safe. And then third, spiritually, so that she would be raised in a manner so that it would be expected. Now, when a man was to go and seek to be the husband of that daughter. By the way, the girls never moved out of the house until they were married. Now, I'm not saying that's right today, but I'm telling you, it does make things a little easier, as long as you can afford it. But, but in that, the father has to weigh whether he is confident that he could, that the man that she is going to marry will uphold the standard that he has presented in those three areas. To this day, we still have that in much of our traditional wedding service. The, you know, the priest or the pastor, such as myself, is standing up here. The daughter comes with her father traditionally, and he says, and who gives the bride away? Have you heard that? Usually there's something like, "Her mother and I do, or I do, or, well, we kind of do, or whatever it is. But somewhere in it, that's kind of the idea. Well, traditionally, the idea of that is is that at that moment, the father is... Be- is actually granting what's called the cord of government upon the shoulder of that man saying, I believe from this point on, from this point on uphold that standard physically emotionally, most importantly spiritually. I expect that in my house there are three threefold cords they sit in my office and I every time I see them I pray I have one for each daughter and I have one for my wife That I could pray God help me to create a standard for my girls and they know that my daughters know they can't pull off that he says he's Christian routine that ain't gonna work for me because that he says he's Christian is not the standard that was presented in the house does that make sense now that is why ladies God calls you his son he's not sexist but when it says that you are all sons of God because you are all permanent members of the family do you get that God doesn't look and go, hmm, just a shame. The cool thing is, we were all born. Here's the weirdest part. Sort of in a really, figure this one out, and I'm not trying to get weird. You're all kind of born women. Because you're all born temporarily part of another family. You're born daughters, but then you get to become sons. Is that weird? Yeah, I agree with you. But God's God. He can do it the other way he wants. Now, back to the point of it. The moment that that girl is married off, that father-in-law ceases to have influence over his daughter. He has to entrust that man to the Lord. By the way, in the book of Isaiah, it says, For unto us a child is born unto us a son is given. Perhaps you've heard that. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the court of government, or the government, will be upon his shoulder. What do you think that metaphor is? That's that wedding metaphor. When God speaks about the coming Messiah, he speaks about him being a groom that's going to take that responsibility. I'll take it at this point. Now, the best groom in the world would be somebody that takes it up a notch. Wouldn't you agree? When it was good to start with and said, you know what, I'm gonna n- my job would be, my plan is to better that. For which I'd say, okay, that's good. That's good work. Now, with that in mind, I believe, and this is just my opinion. You're welcome to disagree and be a Christian. The whole point of that, is, is this is his opinion, is that somewhere down the line, God's really stressing the fact that Jethro really doesn't have any legal right to give him counsel. In other words, he can't force his opinion on, on Moses. But it could be that because he's now been responsible, strange as it is, he was granted his daughter again when it was Moses' job to be taking care of her. He feels like he has a right at this point to start exuding some form of influence because, well, to be honest, Moses wasn't. Now, we can argue about whether or not it was that Moses just did that, because maybe you're not safe because I'm going to be go standing there before a Pharaoh and it can get really ugly. We really don't know in Scripture. All we know is somewhere down the line, she wound up back at her dad's house with the kids, with the boys, and now dad's like, it's time to bring her back. At this point now, he's kind of feeling like he's the dad again of her instead of the person that we obviously had to exert some authority again over her. That's kind of a weird situation. But you know why it's not as weird to us? Because it happens all the time around us, doesn't it? And to be honest, it shouldn't shock me that the world does that, but it really does sicken me that it happens in the church. It is never to be the case within the church. It is never to be in the case in the church that we're ever just supposed to be like, we're just playing around and just kind of figuring this whole thing out and children are born out of wedlock and in that we're just going to kind of figure it out and we're going to play around it. Maybe I'll be a dad, maybe I won't. Look, at, if I can just dare say it, God never called us to be sperm donors, men. He called us to be fathers. And He never called women to be burdened with something that is supposed to be a gift. His, I mean, there should be no greater gift on earth than the gift of life, because it's the one thing we can't do unless God steps in. No matter how hard you try, unless God is involved in it, it isn't going to happen. It is a miracle, an absolute miracle. And in that here, can I just say, with, as far as we in our house here, let's be different. Let's be different now and let's own up to it and let's be the kind of men that God calls us to be. To be daddies and fathers and and to make that plan right and to to treat a woman like she deserves to be treated or better than she deserves to be treated. To be treated like the way that God sees her because she's a princess, man. She is now, if you think about it, if she's been adopted by the King of Kings, she is the princess of the Most High. And that girl deserves to be treated that way. But ladies, yeah, see now, notice the ladies say amen to that. Notice the men ain't going, yeah, amen, can't wait to take on more responsibility. But the ladies, you have a call too on all of that. In this point now, all of a sudden, I wonder how Moses felt. Do you think he felt like, now what am I going to do? Could you imagine if that were the case? I'm not telling you that, but what if it were? Moses is going to sit down with his father and let me tell you what God's doing. And God delivered us from Pharaoh. They chased us, and we were stuck at this place. And man, God, had, God said, raise your hand. And man, he parted the water, and it was walls on both sides. And we walked through those walls. And then Pharaoh's army followed after us, those fools. And then it closed up on them, and they all died in front of us. And you think, wow, that was amazing. And at that, Jethro goes, now I know that your God's above all other gods. And, and by the way, think about it. From Moses' perspective, now out of Egypt, there's got to be a part where he's like, well, to be honest, he's the only God. But not coming from Egypt, you wouldn't say that. And certainly not coming from Midian, would you say that either. And the strange thing is, is though, though they are clearly, some have some form of camaraderie in this, please hear me, that it won't be long by the time we get to the book of Numbers. Now understand, once we get to Mount Sinai, whether we're here now, more than likely, we won't leave until Numbers 20. So the entire book of Leviticus that takes place in an entire month, that will actually take place, the entire part of, it, part of it will take place then while we're at Mount Sinai, and we will not leave until Numbers 20. So think about how long that is, and after that, only a, a few chapters later, they're going to get attacked by the Midianites. So understand, this isn't like a warm, fuzzy, give me a hug, and then from this point on, we're all joining hands and singing Kumbaya. By the, I mean, soon this thing's going to get ugly. But at this point, it's not. And here he sits down, he tells him, he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than them all. And then it says in verse 12, Let's have a feast. We've now invited a, a respected elder, was the idea. And when the respected elder you invited, then the group, the local clan. So Joseph, Joth- Jethro, Moses' father in law, took a burnt offering. By the way, do you remember the last time we saw anything that was a burnt offering? The last time, to be honest, it was when it was Isaac which, by the way, didn't get offered. Genesis 22, read it. And other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law. Now, don't miss the fact here that we have a term that's going to become kind of key in this. And that's the term, elders. Do you see it there in verse 12? Now, please understand, this is not God introducing the idea of an elder. In Exodus 3, Well, actually, I could go before that. In Genesis 50, we see that there appeared to be something like the elders when it came towards the end of uh, Jacob's life and Jacob getting buried. In Exodus 3, Moses was told to gather the elders together to tell them he has been called to be their deliverer, Exodus 3.16. He will then say, the Lord God appeared... The, Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. By chapter 3, verse 18, God says, then you and the elders go and speak to the king of Egypt. By 4.29, it appears as if Moses goes without him. In Exodus 12, when they have the Passover, God says, now I want you to tell the elders this is how this is going to go down with this lamb thing. And then in chapter 17, where we just were at Rephidim, God said, go before the people and take some of your elders and there you're going to strike the rock. So we already have something established like elders. But can I just say this? Church has done a really good job of making titles out of earnings. And here's a couple of my favorites. Elder's one of them. Elder Bob or whatever I mean for some of us we tend to think that guy's probably carrying a book of Mormon others you tend to think that's a position to you know it's like Then the problem is the term presbyteros presbyteros means old person that's it It's old person now it was assumed by the way in a culture by the way where finances were not the most important thing it wasn't guided by economics which by the way would be anyone any culture without God it was assumed that people were important. That was the other option. Can I say that again? If money's not the most important thing, people become the most important thing. It tends to be the case. And when people became most important or were supposed to be in a culture, an older person was a very valuable person. Because you'd think that even if they were dumb, they learned something in the years they've been there for the others who would be dumb like themselves. Now, today, if we're governed by economics, and I'm not political by any means, but it's a, it stands to note, an old person becomes obsolete. And most people, as they get older, they feel that way. They feel like they can't contribute financially to the financial base of a, of a community. And you know what's worse? is They can come into a church and say, oh, this is a young church. I don't belong here. You belong here more than you know. Because as we all grow older... It is our responsibility as older people, or you as older people, to, <laughs> to walk with the Lord and show them something. Can I just say this, please? When I first fell in love with Jesus, I was 22, 23 years old. And I went looking for people that I thought were mature in Christ. And you know what I saw? People that looked burdened. They looked, Like now they've learned how to worry, and they call that being responsible. That skip was out of their step. They were pessimistic now. And I thought, man, if this is spiritual maturity, I hope I'm a spiritual Peter Pan for the rest of my life. And I learned that isn't maturity. Maturity. If the day that I gave my life to Christ, my eyes became wide open, I was 19, my eyes became wide open, and my faith, truly, I just thought God could do anything. He could just do anything. And actually, I believe God would do anything if He wanted to. And now I know Him better. I should be more convinced of that now than I was before, shouldn't I? If back then, I actually believed that God could change anyone, no matter how mucked up you were, how lunatic, how crazy, how whack job you are, Shouldn't I believe that now more? Do you realize how important it is for people to see that kind of elder? I mean, we tend to think, especially if you'll pardon me for saying, in a culture like this, it's like unless we have jowls and we're wagging them and going, I don't really know about that. It's like somewhere down the line, we're not even sure. Well, then count me out. But real maturity should be people that I mean, like like Moses, by the way, who we're gonna find that when he died, he had all that fire and vigor in him, even to the day that he died. What a hero in that sense. Caleb, eighty-five years. And he said, Well, they lived older then. Well, they didn't live that much older. He's eighty five and he's like, Look at forty years ago, I was we spied out the land and I saw Area, I want. And he's speaking to Joshua, who's was hundred, so you can imagine Joshua's like, Go get it, young man, right? And and he goes, Well, okay. So Joshua's like, he doesn't go, but I'm old, tell the young guys. He just goes, All right. Who's coming with me? You, you, you. You guys look like you can fight. Let's fight. Come on. And you're thinking, okay, grandpa. And he's like, all right. And he's going to take the land anyways because he remembered it was good. 40 years ago, he remembered it was good. 40 years ago. He looked back and he said, it was good then. I'm sure it's good now. Let's go. Make me that. The so 40 years from now, if the Lord tarries and I can still stand on these legs, I'm going to be here screaming in your face if you are still willing to listen. And if I'm seen out by that point, we've already made the deal with my wife, she's going to just paint people on a wall and I'm going to yell at them, ah, you need to do that. And the one guy in the back is going to raise, I raised his hand. we got another convert for Christ. Because to be honest, I don't want to die jello. That's just dumb. And with this situation now, this guy's coming in and he's older. And that's the idea of an elder. And we have a group of people that are older. And with that group of people, please know that. And by the way, can I just say, for those of you who are quite young, gr- even than me, um, I know it's intimidating to try to, try to create a la- relationship with somebody that seems quite a bit older, but can I just say that the older people are just as intimidated at creating a relationship with you as you are with them? Because they'll think they won't be cool to you. To be honest, some of the old people, man, are some of the coolest people I know. And I'm just going to bag on a couple of them. Man, you hang out with Sister Ange for a little bit and see how that works out. Or with Shirley and see how that works out. Man, they got funk. It's just cool. And it just, you know, it's like, it's just the coolest thing. And I can tell you, I do the same thing on the young side of it. It's just the list gets longer. But, but let me just say this. As we move into our text here, God, listen, God intends for, for you, if you are young, to grow to that. Know that now? You do not have, not that you need my permission for anything, but you will not have my endorsement for you to get old and cranky in Christ. Go, I know more scripture now. Well, then you should love them better. How could you say you know more and because of that you're nastier? That's you, have, you should have more knowledge to condemn your behavior. I mean, it's like I look at scripture and I think, well, what people does God applaud? And then I think about those who just die weak. I think, man, count me out of that. By verse 13, now it's the next day. So we came, we had our little feast. We had the elders in now. That's the older people that are respected in the community. And I kind of get the idea that that's one of the reasons why Moses could invite a guy like this that is older. That's his father-in-law. Because he goes, in this culture, we respect people who have walked longer than we have. We respect that. So we're going to bring him in and have the feast with them. And while we're at it, come on in, father-in-law. Jethro. The next day, though, Moses has got to get up and go to work. And that's what he sees. The next day, verse 13, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning to evening. And Moses' his father-in-law saw all he did. And again, God's stressing, can I just remind you again, this isn't his father, it's his father-in-law. And his father-in-law kind of sees something here. And it says in verse 14, why do you alone sit? You get the word alone in there. It's like, why are you trying to do this all by yourself? Two million cranky complaining people and you are going to try to handle that alone? Do you know what the problem is? It's like this weird like, Messiah complex we get. Like somehow we're the only real portal to something good. Can you imagine? And that's what Moses says. He says, they come to me well, so that I can, Well, I'm like the only one. To what? To mediate. And to legislate. He goes, Oh, well, well, wait a minute here. Are you really? Because, man, you, you look tired by the end of the day. So I'm like, but, but, but they come to me. Notice it says, they come to me to inquire of God, verse 15. And when they have a difficulty, I judge between them, and I make the statutes known. So what does he do? He says, like, look, it's, it's up to me to mediate, and it's up to me to legislate, and it's up to me to communicate. And all of a sudden his dad says, father-in-law says, but it's up to you to delegate. And you can almost see Moses going, well, what's that? And I do love what he's saying. Now, here's the thing. Remember, this guy cannot command Moses to do anything. But can I just say, when Moses writes later that he was the meekest man that ever lived, can I just say, I think I see it here? Because when you start getting in a place where you think you're the guy that's supposed to have the face on the coin, and all these other people are turning to you at this point, and somebody's going to give you counsel, and you're willing to listen or you're not willing to listen, there's a lot to be said about that. An unlistening does not speak, hum- speak of humility. Like, yeah, 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 who do you think you are? Because in the end of it all, Moses had an open ear to a guy who, by the way, did not have the authority to give it to him. But he listened anyways. What he says is, look, I'm really concerned that you're going to kill yourself. You're going to wear yourself, but not just you. You're going to wear the people out. He goes, but but you don't understand. They come to me to mediate. They come to me to, to teach, to communicate. They come for me to legislate, to give the law out like this. And remember, this isn't, we, are, we haven't gotten to the Ten Commandments yet, so everything's kind of like, Moses, could you go ask God about this? Now, with two million people, what do you think the odds are of how many people you're going to stand before that have really wonky cases and some that have legitimate issues? She took my doll. I think he ate my hummus. You know, what is it? His goat pooped in my lawn. How many things are there? How many of those do you hear before you realize, I mean, you get jaded, right? And he goes, well, look it you can't do this alone. And can I just say, there's the gist of what really God wants to tell us today. We're going to see here in a moment what He really wants to see, what's going to, what it's going to take to raise them up. But you can't do this alone. Now first and foremost, when we gave our life to Christ, we know this, that nothing will ever again separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You won't, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But God says, I'm going to give you some tools to help you in your, in your growth. And when you go, well, wait a minute, but I already have an Aaron and a her. Remember last chapter, they helped hold up my hands? And God says, look at you may have an Aaron and a her. But, that, but, but that's not enough. Because it's not just about what you can receive. This, now, the whole context is, is, if you think about it, this is not about, well, this isn't about what you can take anymore, it's about what you can give. Moses is trying to give here, do you get that? And although Aaron and her may have been, if you think about it, arm holders, but now God's like, Look I want to actually help bring in burden bearers and that's a little bit different. I'm an arm holder, someone that looks, remember we talked and said, you know, bro, I'm a little concerned about this area, man, and your arms are getting a little bit heavy right now. Can I help hold it up for you right now? Because when you hold this up, man, that battle's being won. And I watched Jesus win that battle with you. And it's like, can I love you enough to do that? And there are people like that in your life. You've you got to have those. But understand, somewhere down the line, God still wants to use Dash in such a way that the world could be blessed. Well, where do you put him where he can do that? And this is the part that really troubles me, especially in a teach heavy fellowship like this one would be, is that some people would be like, well, you know what? I don't really have to go to church because I could just sit at home and listen to a message. That's not church. You could be instructed, but it's not church. What you're thinking is, if you think about it, the, the mindset is, I'm coming to take, that's what I take from this, I'll put on some worship music where I know the song and the lyrics, and then after I'm done with that and I've sung a little bit, and I got that feeling in me, then I'll get some teaching from this thing, and then I got my teaching. But in that, God's like, well, look it, but somehow you isolated yourself and you're still trying to do this alone, and we wonder why we're still weak. And then we try to go through a hard time and we don't have anybody we want to call because we are not intimate enough with anyone that we feel comfortable to say, I'm struggling. Because you can't just go, hey, remember me? We hung out six months ago and we had tea. Not six months. That's a lot of teas ago. And you want to say, and my dad just died. And you know the person on the other line doesn't want to say, man, I'm so sorry, but who are you again? if you would have known how many times someone would come up and say I've been a Christian for 30 years my husband's dying we don't have any way to pay the bills we're in a rough time I don't know where to turn and I'm like well you're turning to a total stranger don't you belong to a fellowship they I'm like no I'm like can you imagine how horribly humbling That is, to go and say to a total stranger, I I need your help. And either it's a scam, in some cases it is, in some cases it's really genuine. Look, I'm really hurting, and I have to go to a total stranger and tell you, I'm really hurting. Because we've forgotten that church was really, well, this isn't church. Church isn't just teaching. Church, the word, Ecclesiastes, means the called out ones. It doesn't mean the studying ones. Or the singing ones. See, this is what God intended for every one of us. Every one of us. Not that one guy stood up here somewhere, gave a platform and a format and a template and said, if you try really hard and get to know me and fill things out right, maybe you can make it into this little template. Somewhere down the line, God knew that every person that said yes to him, he was going to give gifts to. Every, every person that said yes to him, he gave gifts to. And he put a calling in their life. A calling which, by the way, was to bless, not to curse. To benefit, to enhance, to enrich, and to fortify the the body of Christ. To fortify the body of Christ. The moment that you said yes, you got born again, and you became a liver, or a kidney, pardon me for saying, or a spleen, or an arm, or a hand, or an eye, or a foot. And then that foot decided, well, I'm just going to sit at home. I'm just going to put on some cream and relax. Get a pedicure. But it ain't walked, ever. You might as well bind it like they used to do in China. But somewhere down the line, we've gotten convinced that this was a spectator sport. And because it's a spectator sport, we kind of think, well, as long as I can get the most out of it. I mean, think about it. What a consumer is, someone who gives the least and gets the most. But God never intended that to be the case. But the thing is, is, if all of the gifts that God's given involve people, and you've got to kind of be near them to exercise it. We wonder why, how many of you are absolutely sure you know what spiritual gifts God's given you? Wow, look around. I think that hand was rubbing the eye because he was yawning. But understand, the reason I say that is, is that God is not intended for you to walk around and go, wow, I, I'm going to die never knowing if I ever even had a spiritual gift. But the intent was, is that God would put us in such a place where the ministry would be us being and what would happen is that we would so fall in love that these times would be times when we so fall in love with God and so dedicate our lives and surrender to Him that out of the overflow of that, we find ourselves doing stuff that we never even planned doing. I warn you, I'm a pastor no matter where I go. And if you don't want one, you might not want to hang with me. I want to warn you. And whether that's on a basketball court or a softball diamond, a pitch, if you want to call it that here, or whether that's playing a game of Uno, or whether that's, I mean, no matter what the case is, the moment something happens where there's a pastor point, something happens, and, 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 and I warn you, you just might get taught whether you want it or not. You find a couple of teachers, and you put them in a room, and they start talking, you can, they can drive you batty because one guy says, oh, That reminds me of a point, From blah, 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 blah. No, oh, that reminds me of this thing. And all of a sudden, they're kind of bringing, and it isn't like they're competing most of the time, they're just teachers, they teach. The benefit of being a shepherd, to be honest, is to be able to try to be among you, not over you. That's never been what God intended. Jesus didn't even do that. But to walk among you and to encourage you, let's fall in love with Jesus. And as we do, then to watch. And then you say, you know, David, I noticed that every time you really fall in love with with the Lord or you get all excited about the Lord, kids come around you when you share it. You teach them. That's why he heads up our kids' ministry. You know that? It wasn't because we thought, man we need a good children's ministry person, somebody that's not too big or scary so it kind of looks like them. No, it's just, to be honest, every time we, that's what we just, we did. And you realize that's what God intends for every one of us. You can't do this alone. And he never intended for you to he really would love it if what we did is when we came here we came here with praise already on our heart we came here with a desire to not get whooped up into a frenzy but a desire to say God I am my antennas are up my radar is on and I just want to be surrendered and just use me and normally what happens it happens so supernaturally naturally you're the last one to notice it's your friends that go you know I've kind of noticed that Nathaniel every time or I see this happen and you know what? Most of us could probably tell you, you know, like those who know Ati would tell Ati what her gifts are quicker than she would. Those that know Bjorn would tell you, Bjorn, this is what I see. Because to be honest, when you fall in love with the Lord, it isn't about telling that anyways. You're just having fun being the part of the body. But no part of the body functions well by itself. Cut off the hand and see how well it plays the piano. So in our text here. Jethro, by the way, he's going to say, "Look at you. You need. You, you can't. I'm not calling you to do this alone. I don't want you doing this alone. And in not doing this alone, I don't want you just picking anyone." Now, by the way, you would say, "Well, this isn't God's advice. This is man's advice." And by the way, I would say, like we have in Scripture, just because a guy gives advice doesn't mean it's God's advice. However, these elders. In chapter 19, God will say, I want you to speak to them, those elders. By chapter 24, they'll be called the 70 elders. Important number, by the way. That becomes the basis for the Sanhedrin. And then you can chase that all the way back to the 70, that went up going to Egypt in the first place. But with that, when you think about it, by chapter 11 of Numbers, Moses is going to talk to God and he's going, these people are just too much. Just kill me. You ever have a day like that? Where you're just like, you know, God, the best thing you could do right now is slay me. And God goes, you know what? Why don't you go and get some help? And with that, then, 70 elders were gathered that God poured His Spirit upon. So I can see God ordaining this just as well. But here's our four points in chapter chapter 18, verse 21. They're all in that verse, and then the whole thing kind of closes up with it. Because this is my prayer for you as well. None of these, by the way, none of these speak about your Education. They speak about your character. Of the 15 things listed in Timothy, when Paul speaks about raising up leaders in Tim to First Timothy, of the 15, one of them is apt to teach. The others, without exclusion, are all character. And the church has so mudd- muddied that. We're looking for people that have degrees if we never find a person with a degree, I don't care. I'd rather you be qualified the way God calls it. We've never, by the way, ever hired from without, nor do we ever plan to. It'll drive you nuts if you're just trying to get a job here. It ain't going to happen. But um, because it isn't a job, it's a calling. What you want to see are people love people the way God called them to. And Here's the four things. Please walk with me on this. Verse 21. You shall select from all the people. The first thing is able men. Can you say chayil? Oh, you're good. It's, you're still there. But give me a little bit more if you could. Chayil. And by the way, this would be my prayer today is that God make us all these. The word chayil, the word we have here is able, is a word that means to be a virtue or a value or valor. And can I just say the first of the four things are that we need to be people of standard. That's that simple people that i actually look at and say that's a person of integrity and here's the easiest way to say and it's interesting because it wasn't like able like you're able to lead it was like god's ability to lead was that you were a person of character that's what it meant you were a person of standard and a person of standard is that qualifies you to be able to lead isn't that interesting it wasn't like you could communicate fantastic it wasn't like you were even a great decision maker if you were a person of character the important decisions will be made right does that make sense if you choose poorly which oranges you, you get at the, at the supermarket, well, then I'm not going to send you for fruit, especially when we're juicing. But the important issues are going to be signed. And here's the issue. Can I just say this way? Character in its simplest sense are the things you do when nobody else is looking. That's just that simple. Am I a man of standard? Are you a person of standard? That's the first of the four. That's what God's looking for. I believe that God is completely in conjunction with us. The second is, such as fear God. The word is yare. Can you say it? Yare. Yare. Now give me a little bit more. Yare. Because this is fear. Yare. The word means to be serious or reverent. And I love this. We're not only supposed to be people of standard. We're to be people of seriousness. Now, now I'm not talking about... Here's the funny part. I'm not even talking about you taking yourself seriously. I think people take themselves way too seriously. I'm talking about taking your calling seriously, taking holiness seriously, and most important as we see here, taking your God seriously. How do we pray? How do we seek? How do we serve? When I approach God, how do I approach Him? Because God says, I'm looking for people that have a real reverence to God. He's not a byword. He's not just something to joke. He's not a couple of guys that are wearing collars joking about their work. He is Lord, Savior, and the Almighty. And because He's the Almighty, nothing stands but in His shadow. Did you get that? And God's like, I'm looking for people that actually have a big view of God, that are serious about how big our God is. I'm not not just looking for people that that can sing the song. And by the way, that could be really dangerous in places where talent seems to be equated with godliness. And one of those, for instance, is the ability to teach, although there's a spiritual gift of teaching, which is different from the just natural ability to teach. Natural ability, you can teach things that aren't eternal. Spiritual gifts of teaching is somebody that may not even be able to teach you how to change your shoes, but could give you an eternal concept and you take it home. The other area is the area of music. You find people that it's like, the guy could play guitar and he can sing. Praise God, we have no one like that that I'm aware of by any means. But it's like, an instantly you think they're spirit-filled. But they may have no standard and no reverence to God. And the moment you start seeing them, it's like as long as they're singing the songs given to them, they're okay. But the moment you give them free time, man, it just becomes irreverent, and uh, and God's just anything but magnificent. God's saying, I'm looking for people that have magnificence of God on their hearts. When they look at God, they do have that big wide-eyed stance, which rules out so many people that think that's mature not to. Does that make sense? Because he's looking for people, give me people that when they think of God, man, their heart starts to beat a little bit faster. Then their eyes get a little big and go, yeah, God's going to. Give me those kind of people. Because that's what we're looking for here. So the first of them, men of standard, or women of standard, leaders of standard, people of standard, second, people of seriousness, third, men of truth. The term there is the word amat. Could you say amat? Amat. It means literally stability. When we see it as truth, the idea isn't just that they love the Word of God, though that clearly applies There are people that are consistent in it. They're stable people. In other words, they're not firecrackers that are riding the roller coaster. And can I just dare say, and I'm going to shoot right at this one. I've never been good at dancing around anything anyway. Listen, God never intended your walk to be an elevator walk, a lift walk. It never intended it to be a roller coaster. Before you knew Christ, your life was governed by circumstances. Mine too. Which means a good day was a day when the circumstances were good. Let's be honest. But the moment I gave my life to Christ, everything changed. The whole paradigm shifted because God came and lived inside of me. And this is what I read in Scripture. It's either true or it's not. That in His presence is the fullness of joy, literally abundance, more than I can hold. And His presence is not reliant on how well I feel. His presence is not reliant on whether I get the job or not or whether or not I get those tickets that I really wanted or whether or not I actually made that train. Whether or not that girl gives me the second look. In my case, that that isn't going to happen, but or shouldn't. But you get the idea. I'm just laying out examples. Because in, it, in the end, as Christians, the world's looking to see if we have anything different. And we tell them God lives inside of us, and then we tell them we're gutted because the exchange rate was poor. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you've perfected prayer. And I think that interpretation for that is if your football team loses. <laughs> you're on a bridge, ready to jump. But Jesus is everything. But they law. Get it? God's going, show me men of truth. Men of truth is going to be someone stands up here. And isn't going to be like, well, where were they last week? You were the best thing. Churches, they love church. They love Jesus. And this week, where in the world are they? No, and that doesn't mean that the person doesn't have a chink in their armor. Every human being does. But they're serious enough about it that they don't want it to be as their lifestyle. And they're serious enough about it to get a couple errands and hers beside them so they can hold their hands up before those hands get too heavy to do something about it. Do you get that? God goes, what I would really love are people, men of standard. Men of seriousness. Oh, there's one more still. And men of stability. And then the last of them. And he says, hating covetousness. The words plunder. That's what it's worth. And I just say they're also men of selflessness. Now, here's the funny part you can't be any of them of yourself. Good luck but then I don't believe in luck either, so there you go. What does it take for me to be a person of standard? The Holy Spirit's got to write His law in my heart. What does it take for me to be genuinely reverent? His Holy Spirit to completely immerse me in my sight. What does it take for me to be stable? The very fruit of God's Holy Spirit is self-control. What does it take for me to be selfless? The fruit of the spirit's first love, and there's nothing more selfless than love. Now I'm not asking for you to have some form of esoteric, shaking, wild, levitating experience. I'm looking for the real thing that God calls you to, And the real thing, and I'm not saying that that couldn't be a real experience, it certainly is that, as if this is what God would really like to do with, with his Holy Spirit manifested through you, make you a person of standard. Make you a person of seriousness when it comes to God. Serious reverence to our King. Serious stability. And serious selflessness. You show me people like that. You show me a place where the world's going to be flipped upside down. Because we are serious about how God's going to do it. And we are hopeful. And we have the faith that God will. And we are just stoked to be on the ride. So this guy sits down and he says, Look, it, you're going to die. But the worst part is it's not even just you. How many people like waiting in a queue all day? They're going to, I mean, some of those people waited in a queue for eight hours. You thought they were seeing a rock star by the time they were done because they lost their little game, because someone pooped in their lawn, because somebody took their radishes. He's like, stop it. Have some guys that will handle this with you. Now, perhaps Moses may be the most equipped man, as a result of that, handle the big cases. But in the end of it all, notice Moses is never the end. Moses is still the portal to seek God. Did you notice that? I mean, Moses is like, "They come to me, but in the end of it all, it's like, "But they should come to you so you could go to God. And why don't you go there with them? The good news is, Jesus broke any barrier of anything that could possibly be like that. Anyways, go straight to him. Don't avoid the middleman. Go straight to your king. You want biblical counsel? You want to see how something relates to the Bible and you feel like you may not actually know it that well? Hey, look at I would love to go and I'll open the Bible with you and we'll seek the Lord together. That will be my pleasure. But in the end of it all, that's the benefit of teaching straight straight through Scripture is so much counseling happens right now, right here, that a lot of those appointments don't happen simply because they already did. Because when His Word is open, God ministers and He therapizes. That's one of the beautiful things of it. Are you with me on that? God intended church to be this that God's going to raise up Chukes to be a person that actually affects people. I may not. Diane. Some people are going to, some younger people are going to cling to Diane. Believe it or not, Diane's actually not 30. Um, I won't say any more than that, okay, Diane? But, and, you, and it's like, and some people are going to be drawn to her and she's going to walk you through things because of what she's experienced in her life. There's this beautiful gal with a hat on in the back. I recommend you go to her as well. She's, she's my wife, in case you don't know. I'm not just kind of hitting on one of them like, Get I'm not bringing my mom to this church. <laughs> Beloved, please hear me. What if, what if we took a week, this week, and wait a minute, that's homework? Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm not going to lie to you. And this week we said, God, prepare me for next Sunday. Prepare me for next Sunday. And next Sunday, I want to do more than receive, though I want to receive. I want next week, I want to be used. Do you think, honestly, the Lord wants to use you? Yeah, as a matter of fact, that's His job. Your responsibility is character. God, make me that person a character. And if you make me that person a character, the rest is His job, anyways. The only difference is the first part's your choice. What kind of character do I want? That's the choice I want. Who do I want to hang with? That's going to shape my character. What do I want to pursue? That's going to shape my character. Because if you're here, what would happen if after this we broke and we all went and got our goodies, our sweeties in the next room and you were just like, all right, Lord, and you just went and you just prayed and you went home and you went, "Ah, did anything happen? God knows. The issue is if you came that way, do you think it would please the Father? I'm sure it would. And what if we all did? Could you imagine? Man, we, had, we were on our game. So how does this chapter end? Hello? All right, this is where it goes. Notice what it says. Let them judge over the people at times. Here's the issue, 22 through 27. He says, look at Let them handle the, let them handle the little cases. Let them handle who stole whose rutabaga. Let them handle who pooped in whose yard. Let them handle those things. But when it comes to the issues that seem like they're more of a heavy matter, where these people are like, I'm overwhelmed, then why don't you handle those? What happens in the end of it all is, Everybody's helping to carry the burden. And you know what? Do you know God did intend that? He never intended a guy to stand up here and be a superstar. What he did intend is for us all to be servants. All, all, all to be servants. To be honest, all I'm trying to do is be faithful with what he's called me to do. What if we all did? I'm not saying I'm doing it any better than any of you. But what would happen when you, God has gifted you to counsel, and he's brought somebody into your life, and you give the counsel that God could have given through me? Do you think I'd think that's bad? I'd say right on, because then the body's functioning the way the body's supposed to function. And I'm not the head. Jesus is. At the end of it all, then, it says, they judged the people at all times, verse 26. The hard cases they brought to Moses. But they judged every small case themselves. And Moses led his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. By the time this is done, then, Jethro was headed back to, to Midian. Now some of you maybe were raised in this thing where a family sounds like a good idea. Some of us may have had little to no real concept of what a real family is. And then we got adopted by Jesus. By the Father through Jesus. And we were we we're put in this thing. And can I just say this as we get this now to close. And we actually have communion today. I love that. Communion with Christ and each other. I love that. Please hear me. My mother was married before she married my father, and she had three children, the oldest of which um, still alive, the second brother um, we've lost to an overdose, and because those two boys really didn't get along very well with my father, which they were hippies, and my dad was what he was, not a hippie enthusiast, that's for sure, um they had an opportunity to go be with their dad in Huntington Beach, California, instead of my dad in Chicago. That was an easy choice. So off they went. And they were gone. I was probably two or three years old. And ultimately, through a a series of circumstances, after my wife and I were first married, the Lord reunited me with my brother. Turned out he's a pastor. Turns out now he's my pastor. Soon you will meet him, because in the end of February, he's going to come here when our family's gone for a week. And he's going to be here filling in that space. Oh, I, I know you're going to love him. He's my favorite pastor. Well, with that in mind, imagine what happened when he comes and we meet for the first time. Now, I'll be honest, I'm totally self-consumed. I'm young in face because, you know, I'm, I've totally grown out of that. Uh, but, you know, my first thought is, I'm sure I'm I, I, is he good looking because I'm, I mean, he's older than me. This is probably what I'm going to look like when I get older. And so that was my first thought. And the funny part was he wasn't the first guy that came to the door. The guy that came to the door at first was this, like, super hairy guy that, like, was like Esau that showed up at the door. And I'm like, whoa, this doesn't even look like me. Then my brother came. But can you imagine how awkward it was? We kind of, like, sat next to each other. and we're like, hey, hi, how do, you, do we hug? Do we brothers tug, right? You know, And because and we hadn't seen each other in over 20 years. How weird is that? He's like, hey, you know what? We're going to start this program up in Chico. Why don't you come? And God had removed all the importance of where we were. Within a month, we were gone, moving to a place we had never been, my poor wife and I. Um, And off we head to Chico, California to go and sit under this man that I had met once. In those three years, it was like, how do you be a brother? You know, you're like, I don't know. We're more brothers now than we ever were then. Because it's like, how do you figure that stuff out? because we just didn't have a good model for it. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I say that is, is some of you, maybe you've never really had that, and then you got adopted by, G- by the Father through Jesus Christ, and you got stuck in this family. Hi, welcome. This is a family reunion. <laughs> and, and you're like, I don't know what to do. How, do. how do you be a brother? It's like, you know the cool thing is, just delight in the Father. Let Him do the rest. And the cool part is he has this way of uniting. Some of you are sitting next to people that either are total strangers or were total strangers weeks ago when you started this. I mean, think about some of you are related, so I get that. But I mean, I look around and I think, you guys didn't know each other. You guys didn't know each other. You guys didn't know each other. You didn't know each other. And then I look around and I think, how utterly magnificent. Old, young, dark light. And there's something magnificent about the fact that this is what God makes a family to look like. And you know what? I absolutely love it. And you know, but I'm not, can I just remind you, I'm not the dad. I'm To be honest, the big brother that gets the privilege of saying, my dad rocks. Let's enjoy him. As we go to prayer, and then enjoy communion. When we go to prayer here, can I just say, that, let me just read a few verses as we do this. Listen. The first time God, never sa- said, the first time God ever said something wasn't good, Genesis 2.18 when he said, It is not good that man should be alone. In Proverbs 18 when it says, A man who seeks to isolate himself seeks only his own desire. In other words, he's being selfish. In a country here where everybody isolates. And it says, And he rages against all wise judgments. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting at verse 9, it says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, there's a symbiotic relationship between them that actually is synergetic. And it says then, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. If two lie down together, they'll keep warm. Now, I'm not instituting anything here that you, you take in some weird direction. But how can one be warm alone? The one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In Proverbs 27:17 it says as iron sharpens iron so was a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. In 1st Corinthians chapter 12 also in Romans 12 it says that God has set every member of the body right where he wants. He knows what part he made you. And he knows that the part of the body needs to function in the body for this to happen. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it tells us to bear one another's burdens, which is what we saw here, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, if you've not been adopted, let me just tell you how simple that is. We in and of our own flesh, we're guilty because of what we've done wrong and somebody needs to pay for it. Us or someone perfect, which eliminates all of us from doing it except the one who's perfect, and that's God. God, in His perfect love for us, sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay your sins and mine. And there at the cross, my guilt died. But there at the empty tomb is my offer of adoption. That was the price it took to adopt. It's the price it took to adopt you and me it says, the moment I say yes to Jesus' gift at the cross confessing him as my Lord and Savior the moment I say yes God places within me his spirit that God calls the spirit of adoption by which we cry out Daddy, Abba to this day in Israel they'll say Abba and it's Daddy it's not the spirit of condemnation it's the spirit of adoption my friends if you've not said yes to jesus you're still living an orphan's life but you don't have to any longer you can say yes to jesus today be forgiven of your sins be adopted by the king of kings if you could pick a dad to adopt you you couldn't pick a better one but if you have said yes to jesus then my challenge to you is will you commit with me this week to pray that when we show up next week we show up to receive and give that's the idea Pray with me, please. God, I thank you so much for the gift of your presence here, for the power of your word, even in a man who seems to be ungodly, who somehow is just in his most infant stage, recognized, God, that you were above all, at least in his declaration. And yet, in all of that, yet, we'll give counsel here that we can actually take very careful heed of that we're never going to be the Savior. We can't save people, but we can be used. You're the Savior. We in and of ourselves can communicate something, but Lord, you through your Spirit working through us can communicate matters of eternity where permanent change happens and lives are, are transformed. And I just pray, God, first for every believer here, and myself included, that we would be people who come for more, that you would reinvent church for us, to be more than just a time where we hoop and holler and a time where we sing and clap and, and a time where we open up your Bible. Though Those things should be present, but also, God, that we would come to be available to be used, Though to come to be available to discover what you have for us, how you want to use us. And I am convinced in this room you have world changers, life changers, prophets and evangelists and apostles and pastors and teachers and people that are going to get gifts or have gifts that they've never seen ever advocated, that you are going to use through them in such a way that we're all going to go, wow. But for that to happen, God, give us that faith that has a go for it in our spirit. So make us please, God, make us people of standard. People that genuinely, Lord, genuinely trust that you want to make us a character that is impeccable and pure and clean and people of seriousness. God, that when we look at You, we recognize You are the Almighty. And by being the Almighty, we could trust that You are all powerful to accomplish anything You want and make us people of stability, that our lives are not like a roller coaster. It isn't like we're superhero Christian one day and then super scum the next. But God, that we would be people who are even shooters, God. That we are people that want to walk and every day should rise up to be better than the last. And people of selflessness, that this isn't about personal investment, God. We came here not to be selfish. We come here, Lord, to be used, to be selfless, and to be a blessing. Not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing as well. And God, thank you for that. Because, Lord, I don't want this to be something that has ever been, or will ever be a burden to anyone. And you told us, Jesus, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. We want to we live that way. But while heads are bowed here, you know whether or not you've said yes to this gift. Are you living the life of an orphan right now? Or are you even the, while the God of eternity who created you to be with Him wants to adopt you right now? And if that's you, I want to pray a prayer. And I ask you to listen. And at the end, I ask you to give a stern and confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let these words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer, so be it. And here it is. God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I'm guilty in and of myself. But I know that you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that all of my guilt could be punished. And while my guilt was punished, you give me the choice to say yes to that forgiveness. Though I've offended you, you've chosen to forgive me. And so I say yes, confessing Jesus as my ransom, as my Savior. And as confessing Jesus as my Savior right now, I surrender my life to you. Father, adopt me as your own. And as you adopt me as your own, make me your child and use me to be a blessing to our new family. As I surrender to you, I confess Jesus as my Lord, as he has the right now to create the rules and the standards for my life. But for him to be Lord, I surrender. And I say, here I am, Father, I'm yours. I'm Your Son now. I'm Your Child. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask You to say, Amen.